This episode of Inside Golf Podcast is brought to you by RickRungood.com. If you're a first-time listener, RickRungood.com is a statistical database for the PGA Tour, the Corn Ferry Tour, even European Tour stats. Get some Champions Tour stats in there. We might even have a live coming soon. Who can say? Uh, but if you're just getting into golf betting or DraftKings, uh, which I would imagine you have some interest in if you're listening to this podcast, and you're one of those people that only likes to invest in major championship weeks, if you use code Andy, you get a week-long pass for $7. So you get all the stats and tools that come with the site, lineup generator, model builder, ownership projections, cheat sheets, all that good stuff. Plus, very detailed breakdown, written breakdown of Brookline. It's coming out on Monday. I'm proud of that one. And a very detailed written breakdown as well of the DraftKings slate on Wednesday, where I walk you through my core plays, weather, ownership. Would not recommend making uh, any of your lineups before checking that one out. We continue to crush on these core plays. I've gotten a number of great sweats heading into, I guess it'd be Sunday now. I'm recording this on Saturday evening. Uh, and I've seen some of the readers are in even way better position than I am. So I highly recommend signing up. Now, the other thing that you get is access to the Slack channel uh, where you can reach me with questions all week. Uh, I do my best with Twitter DMs. I usually don't make it through all of them before the tournament starts. I always make it through all of them at some point, but not always before the tournament starts. So if you have questions, I can guarantee you have a far better chance of reaching me in the Slack channel. Um, I'll be there all week. So sign up today on rickrungoods.com, promo code Andy. All right. So US Open Pod. I spent a ton of time on Brookline. I'm not going to lie. I think I've got some some good stuff here. I have not played this golf course like I have with Southern Hills. Uh, I have spoken to a lot of people who have played it, however, over the past couple of weeks, which I'll, I'll get to a little bit later. But when it comes to the USGA setups, you know, setup usually trumps architecture, if that makes sense. So, you know, if you're trying to ask your buddies who have played Brookline, like, what's this course going to play like? Well, it's going to play like a U.S. Open. Like it's going to be, I mean, the course that gets rated by Golf Digest and that the members see every day, it's not even the same holes that they're playing this week. It's going to be vastly, vastly different from what members see every day. And I'll I'll get to more of that stuff later. What else we got to do at the top? Okay, if you're new, uh, I usually, yeah, hopefully, get a lot of new listeners for the majors. Uh, I will be breaking down absolutely everything you need to know about this golf course before you make any wagers or DraftKings lineups um, or make picks for those pools that, you know, everyone does for the majors. I go pretty in depth this week, um, but I've worked pretty hard on, on making it digestible too, for even if you're just a casual fan. Um, of course there are, you know, there's four weeks of the year that really sort of matter to me. So if you have the ability to share the show on Twitter if it helps you out, tell friends about it. Um, I think you get really tacky when people try and hit you over the head with this stuff every single week. So I try and only keep it to four weeks of the year where it's like, yeah, you know, it'd be freaking awesome if you could help share the show out this week if it helps you at all. So these four major weeks, I always do a giveaway. Uh, all you have to do, five-star review on Apple Podcasts, leave your Twitter handle or email address so I know how to contact you. Last two winners can vouch for that. I, I pay immediately. Uh, but all it takes is a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure 
This has happened with a bunch of people. You got to make sure you, I, I need to be able to contact you. So whether it's your email or your Twitter handle, most, I would imagine most people know me through Twitter. Um, but you'll be entered into a draw to win $200 that I will send you directly through PayPal or any other means of payment that, that is convenient for you. Would it help your chances if you followed Inside Golf Podcast on Twitter? It might. Would it help your chances also if you retweeted or shared the show? It also might. I'm not going to rule that out as a possibility. Um, and the other wrinkle that I want to throw into this one, I guess I, I want to give you guys the option um, because I'm not sure what's more appealing to people, this or or just the money. Um, I guess the value of this is a little bit more than $200. But I've used the uh, same Scotty Cameron Del Mar for about 10 years. I think I started using it when I was like 17 years old. After 10 years, I think I'm finally ready to try something new. I just need a change of pace. I've been testing all these different putters at at my course here in LA. I just want, I need something new to look down on. Um, I, I feel like I've lost a little bit of my mojo on the greens and I've kind of fallen in love with this this new Scotty phantom model, I guess they call it. Um, I've always been a blade guy, but I, you know, I really like the way I'm rolling it with this one. So if you prefer a, a Scotty Cameron Del Mar, it's still in great condition. Uh, it's an older model, but it's a kind of a swaggy putter. It's like the same style that Phil uses. Um, I can send you pictures and stuff too. I think I, I looked at similar models on eBay. It's going for about, 250 on eBay. Um, so if you win and you would rather have my Scotty Cameron than you would the $200 in cash, by all means, I can discuss that with the winner. Um, but it's got a lot of sentimental value. A lot of battles I had back in the day with Seve and old Tom Morris. A lot of great rounds, a couple sub 70 rounds with that putter. A lot of big putts made. Um, but it's time for a change. And I'm happy to depart with it and I guess move on to a new stage of my putting career. Just reminded me, by the way, speaking of Seve, quick shout out to my friend Ryan, who I talk golf with pretty much every day. Just had another kid, Logan, who's healthy and happy. And you may know Ryan as he's outright king on Twitter. So good golf better too. Definitely worth a follow. Uh, but absolutely one of the best guys you'll ever meet. So I wanted to give him and his family a quick shout out on another, like I said, happy and healthy child. Um, it's a beautiful thing. All right. So I think we went through all that stuff. Um, I got sidetracked there for a second, five-star review on Apple podcast, giving away free cash or a putter. Um, you know, I have a ton more thoughts on, on live. Uh, we just don't have time today. I discussed it pretty in depth with Tom on my podcast last week. If you want to go back and listen to that, I also talked about it on my solo podcast from last week. If you go, want to go back and listen to that from last week, maybe I'll even fit some of it into my podcast with, with Kobe later this week. Probably not. Um, but I thought he had some really articulate things to say in his Twitter thread that he put out the other night. I retweeted that by the way. So you can find that on my profile. Um, Maybe Kobe and I will get to it on Tuesday, but I've just got, 
I've got too much U.S. Open stuff, and I want to try and keep this as close to an hour if I can. Same with Canadian Open. Been a really fun tournament so far. I do, I've got Finau right there. Fitzpatrick got brutally murdered by Kirshner, so he's probably out of it. Um, but hopefully Finau can can outdo a Rory tomorrow. Not sure I'd count on that. Um, I rarely ever hedge. If it's Finau and Rory coming down the stretch, might have to consider it. Uh, Rory just looks really locked in right now, and I think there might be a little and not so subtle, by the way. Oh, you guys want to go to live? Well, look at me win this. There's more to golf than that. Look how much more meaningful this is. You kind of read between the lines with the uh, post-round and Rory and JT comments, and you know, JT's JT's calling it like a major atmosphere out there. This would be Monahan's just wet dream. Um, so it kind of feels like a little destined to happen with Rory tomorrow, but I've also seen Rory wilt down the stretch very often. Um, so maybe Finau or one of the chasers like Kirk or the zombie that is Fitz that are still within striking distance can steal it. You know, it's, it's more of like a, I don't have a ton of hope in Finau. It's more of a DraftKings sweat for me. I've got some really good runners there. I got a couple of, couple ones with like five guys in the top 15 and Lee Hodges who shot a 77 today uh, and probably took me out of winning some of the big, big money. Um, but that's about all I got to do on Canada right now. I want to get right into Brookline. I will give a quick shout out to the Curtis Cup. You know, I probably had more fun watching the Curtis Cup this week than any of the other tournaments that are going on this week. I know I'm in the vast minority of that, but I just think Marion is like a top five to 10 golf course in the world. So anytime it's on TV, especially when it's playing firm and fast, it's appointment viewing for me. Um, So seriously, if you have time tomorrow, I'm probably releasing this Sunday morning. So if you're catching this on Sunday morning and you have uh, the luxury of multiple screens at your disposal, um, check it out. It's on Golf Channel 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. Peacock 2 to 5 as well. The the early coverage, the cock. I don't even know if I have the cock. I may get the cock for early Curtis Cup tomorrow. Um, but I've had such a blast watching it. I, I it's it's such a stark juxtaposition to the dystopian kind of soulless vibe uh, that I've got watching a little bit of live. It's almost jarring, but I, you know, I No Lang Up did this great documentary on. Stanford's women's golf and I'm kind of like just in the tank now for Rachel Hack and Rose Zhang um, I think those girls are superstars Zhang is like Morikawa on steroids you want to talk about somebody that just doesn't miss she's like way more well-rounded than Morikawa too but just fucking filthy iron play uh, just absolutely artisanal and Rachel Hack is just like a ray of sunshine. She's so easy to root for. She's got a ton of charisma. She's a good interview, talented as hell. Um, I'm just in the tank for these girls. So when you throw all of this talent onto a top 10 golf course in the world, that's where I'm going to be. And I think it really, you know, if you were feeling a, a little bit downtrodden with all the news coming out this week 
um, I think watching a little bit of the Curtis Cup will maybe restore your faith in golf a little bit and why you're a sports fan. And I mean, these girls are out there not competing for money. They're part of a team and you just see how much it means to them out there. Um, so I, I honestly can't recommend it enough. Um, like I said, it kind of brings you back to, Oh yeah, this is like, this is why I watch golf. Like this is, this is why I'm a fan watching these girls that fucking give a shit on one of the architectural masterpieces um, in the world. So I, I think you'd be surprised how fun it is, especially if you check out the No Laying Up documentary too. So you, you maybe have some context on the Stanford women golf team to get a background on some of them. I could not recommend it more highly. Uh, it's really, really, really worth your time. Uh, I mean that. All right. Enough with that stuff at the top. Let's dive into the U.S. Open. Country Club at Brookline. This is a course that is absolutely steeped in tradition. It's one of the founding clubs of the USGA, along with Shinnecock, Chicago Golf Club, Newport Country Club, and St. Andrews, the New York version. I've played all of those except Brookline. Uh, and this is the first time it's hosted the U.S. Open since 1989. It's hosted many championships. The U.S. Open three times, USAM six times, the Ryder Cup in 1999. I don't know if you guys know this, but Matthew Fitzpatrick won the 2013 U.S. Amateur here. Um, that is sarcasm. That is, I hope people are on board with that one. Um, he is going to be, a, I would imagine, a very popular selection this week. He probably let some people down how he's played over the weekend. But Fitzpatrick, the last time we saw this here, we did was the USAM, the last time we saw Brookline. And Fitzpatrick won. A couple other guys that played. Corey Connors made it to the semifinals here. Xander made it to the third round. Scheffler made it to the quarterfinals. Matthias Schwab made it to the third round. Bryson made it to the second round, a smaller Bryson. And JT, Homa, Gooch, Zalatoris, Wise also played, uh, but did not make the cut. So basically, those guys at least have have looked at it before and Brookline is one of the it's one of the first American country clubs it was founded back in the 1880s real old school real blue blood uh it started as a horseback riding club and a shooting club back then and its first golf course was designed in the 1890s by Willie Campbell it was only six holes over the next number of years it was lengthened uh, and expanded to the point where it had a full 18 holes by the 1913 U.S. Open, which is probably the most famous U.S. Open in golf history. Francis, we met, beat Harry Varden and Ted Ray in a playoff. Um, they made a movie about that with Shia LaBeouf. Mark Frost also wrote a, a very good book on that as well. Uh, and it expanded to 27 holes in 1927, which is when William Flynn added the Primrose Nine. And... Flynn is good. I mean, he's probably one of the more influential, we'll say, golden age architects. He's designed Shinnecock, um, Cherry Hills, a ton of golf courses in the Philadelphia area, Catanset, just to name a few. And, you know, ultimately, this golf course has been touched by a lot of different architects. It's changed a lot over time uh, without really ever kind of compromising its original bones. You know, Reese Jones came in in the 1980s and he did a very 
un-Reese Jones-like restoration. Uh, You know, not kind of the open doctor style stuff that he became famous for. That's kind of an atrocity, in my opinion, with the the lengthening and narrowing. He did more of a a real restoration where he brought back some of the aesthetic features. Um, He didn't really remove too many trees or expand greens. But in a way, um, Brookline was really where the the entire restoration thing kind of started. And Bill Cor and Ben Crenshaw came in for a little bit here, too, after the 1989 Ryder Cup. And then the big change that you're going to hear about all week happened when Gil Hans came in. And he actually first started consulting here in 2009. He's been working on this course in spurts for like a decade. You know, it wasn't that we're going to shut down the course for a year uh, like a Southern Hills or an Oakland Hills, or we're going to get in and out. You know, he kind of, he kind of came in and out and was working on a bunch of other product projects, but he's kind of been working on this thing for a while. And this is the first time that, you know, I think we're all going to get to see his, his finished product. And as is often the case with Gil Hans, he wasn't really brought on to make these big architectural changes, you know, they hadn't hosted a championship since 1989. So for the 2013 USAM, you know, the game had changed a lot in those 14 years. So Hans was kind of tasked with what he does best, you know, making a classical golf course be able to stand up to modern technology without, you know, losing its architectural integrity or its bones. And I think he succeeded mightily in that. Um, I think it's going to be quite hard this week, uh, even for the best players in the world. So it's stretched out now to a par. It's a par 70 measuring 7,264 yards. Four holes on this course have water hazards. Um, They don't really come too much into play. The fairways are bent grass. The greens are only 4,388 yards square or square feet, not yards on average, and they are a mix of Bantz and Poa. Um, I've been DMing with, me and Bamford have been DMing about this, trying to figure it out for the past couple of days. Bamford actually actually emailed the course super. So we're looking at a 80% uh, Poa-Bent split, which is pretty similar to what we saw at Winged Foot. Um, but you got that East Coast Poa-Bent mix. Uh, the rough is a mix of a lot of things too. We've got some Kentucky bluegrass in there, perennial ryegrass, and poa poa annua. And I want to run through the routing uh, because, like I mentioned, this course that gets rated by Golf Digest, the course that the members play every day, is not the course that these guys are going to see for the U.S. Open. So. The course that members play every day and gets rated is the Clyde and Squirrel Nines. Um, the U.S. Open gets played on what's called the composite course, and it consists of holes from all three of the nines, including the Primrose. Um, and even the composite championship course that we're going to see this year is different than the one we saw for the 1989 U.S. Open and the 2013 USAM. So the fourth, eighth, and ninth holes are skipped, and in its place is the ninth, the first, and the eighth from the Primrose. So basically, the fried egg does a way better job of uh, articulating this, but I'm going to do my best for the six people that actually care. 
uh, you basically play one, two, and three, and then you go to what is usually what would be, I guess, the fifth on the Clyde and Squirrel. And then at the seventh hole, it changes, and you go to the par five, which plays as the eighth hole. Um, and then that's where you kind of see the first primrose hole, which is number nine. And then it goes back to the normal routing, and then you get to 11, and you get that new par three, which would normally be 12 on the... <laughs> Yeah. And that's that's where it even gets weirder and you go back to Primrose. Uh but you're playing Prim Primrose 1 to 2 green. And then you play Primrose 8, which is this big dramatic par 5. And then that brings you back right back to 15T of Clyde Squirrel. And then you play 15 to 18 on the regular routing. I don't know if any of that made sense, but that was the best I could do. Like I said, I think the fried egg, they put out a podcast a couple of weeks ago, you know, really diving into the the architecture of it. And they do a better job of articulating how weird it is, the way that it, it has been set up. You know, they've played this course before and walked it with hands. So I they, they really kind of take you through the routing changes that I'm not going to spend a ton of time on because I don't think that has any impact on the vast majority of people that are listening to this for you know, gambling takes. Um, but if you remember at Southern Hills, how you had these guys teeing off over a green and how crazy that was, you're going to see players here like hitting approach shots over a green that other players are playing onto another green, um, which, you know, at this point, we're really having to do some gymnastics with these golden age courses to get them to be compatible with with modern technology. But anyway, the first four holes of Brookline are really hard. It's a really tough start. And the first four holes are, they're really kind of on flat land. Um, and that they, they kind of serve the purpose of getting you out to where the really interesting land is. It goes 488 par four, 215 par three, 499 yard par four, 493 yard par four. So as Liv would say, don't blink. I mean, that is a, that is a brutal opener. Get ready for some plus five through four from a couple of guys because the opening stretch is brutal. And then the first time that you could really breathe is five, which is a drivable par four. One of the weaker holes on the course, in my opinion, just because it's one of those drivable fours where everyone is just going to hit driver. There's not a ton of strategy into it or benefit in laying up. And the back as well. I mean, I guess I'll go off split tees on Thursday and Friday, but like to me, 10 looks like the hardest hole on the course. That's a 499 yard par four that kind of plays to this perched up elevated green. The 12th hole looks, you know, almost as brutal. That's a 473 yard par four with what is, you know, kind of the smallest green on the course. Um, 13, you have this completely blind tee shot, and then you get to 14, which is this awesome long par five. If you do not drive the ball in the fairway, you are not going to be able to get up to that second tier where the green is. And you're going to have to watch pros have like these long iron blind approach shots as a third into a par five. And it's got this kind of got this cool, like punch bully green too. That, that one's going to be really fun. Both the par fives, you know, are really long. They play they play both kind of play uphill. They occupy some of the most dramatic land on the property. Um, and then unlike the par fives that you see on the PGA tour, they're not really birdie holes. In fact, I wouldn't be shocked if 
both played right around even par, maybe probably 14 over par. Um, the eighth will be a little bit more scorable. I do think that players will be able to reach that if they hit a good drive. They There will be at least one eagle there. Um, but it's got this massive false front, you know, so there aren't even many pins. It's a very small green. Um, that hole is going to be fun to watch and you'll kind of get that moment, which I think is so fun in golf, which we've been getting at Marion this week where, you know, you have this giant false front. Is it going to make it up the hill? Is it going to stay? You know, if you can't get there in two, it's a, a blind approach wedge shot where you really have to control your spin to a green with this massive false front where the ball could kind of come right back down to your feet. Um, you have to find the fairway on these holes or you will really have a difficult, difficult time making par. Um, a sentence that you do not hear too often with par fives. I mentioned 11, which is going to be this really short par three. A couple really cool hole locations that they can use on that one. Um, and if you miss the green, that's a really tough up and down from one of those bunkers. And if you're long, you're basically like in a wetland area. Um, and then 17 is just a really interesting hole architecturally. I mean, you can try and cut the corner on the dog leg. You can hit iron off the tee two major championships in a row. We're actually getting like a short par four coming down the stretch, which I think is really cool. Um, and then the green is kind of like this, this double plateau green where the top tier is 600, 675 square feet. It's just a awesome, awesome hole. As you can probably tell by this, I really am into this course. I think it's a really, I am really excited for everyone to get to see it on TV. I would say, the thing that's going to get probably the number one thing you're going to hear this week, the defining feature of Brookline is it's small greens. Uh, when Gil Hans was asked what made the course so challenging, he said it's the small kind of tilty greens. You know, they're the second smallest set of major championship greens to pebble, but they have a lot more undulation to them than pebble. You know, Hans, he did expand the greens a little bit, but only so you'd be able to access more hole locations. Um, they're still very, very small. And, you know, it's kind of just got this this rustic feel to it. It it, it looks old. Um, you have this wide array of grassed, grasses. It's, it's rugged. Um, but I think that's kind of what makes it beautiful. Um, you, you've got these rock outcroppings and these chocolate drop mounds, which are kind of just these really unpredictable hazards, which is really fun because there's like actual randomness involved um, and you could get the ball above your feet. I mean, truly anything. You're not going to get a lot of level lies out there. It's quirky. It's claustrophobic. Um, I've counted multiple blind tee shots uh, and there's going to be a bunch of blind approach shots as well. You know, only two holes on this entire course playing a straight line from tee to green. Every hole is curving in some direction, uh, which is absolutely nothing like we saw at Surrey Pines last year. It just It's a golf course that fits Boston really well. And a lot of these restorations try and make the course look new. And Brookline doesn't. You know, I, like I said, I think rugged and, and rustic is, is are the best words for it. And I, I think it's going to, I think it's going to play really well on TV. Um, 
But, you know, that's kind of my love letter to Brookline. I, I will get to what I think matters here from a handicapping standpoint. Um, so, you know, the important thing to understand about U.S. Open setups, and there's always been this traditional U.S. Open setup with the narrow, super narrow fairways and the super thick rough. And then they kind of experimented a few years with a Chambers Bay and an Aaron Hills and a Shinnecock, um, which were very different U.S. Open setups. You have wider fairways, more exposed golf courses, you know, these kind of faux lengths golf courses, super firm greens. Um, and a lot of the players hated it and complained. So now you've seen them go back to these very traditional, tight, narrow fairways, super thick rough, where it's just like, okay, this this just becomes a U.S. Open course, right? Which is fine, but, you know, it's important to note this is a different, different setup than guys see week to week. You almost want to, like, rely less on PGA Tour stats and, and more on just trying to really figure out, okay, who has... Who has the ability to do this? Who has the ability to execute? You know, the U.S. Open has always been a major about, can you execute this golf shot? It's a major of execution. Can you hit it long and straight um, and also have a good short game? So, you know, it's like, like I said earlier, I don't care if you've played the country club before and you're going to tell me how this is, how the country club is going to play. This is going to play like a U.S. Open. You know, they change everything. Set up this week is more influential than architecture. Um, you know, I've, they even were talking about this on fried egg too, where they're narrowing the fairways at LACC next year um, because they, they want it to play this specific way. Um, so I can't emphasize enough how different of a setup this is in terms of what guys see from week to week. One of the things that Hans kind of also talks about was, you know, Jack Nicholas would walk into a major championship locker room and he could immediately tell who he had to compete with. And, you know, you could see who was complaining, who had the kind of nerve to complete on a compete on a golf course's penal. And, you know, Hans brought that, that quote up from Nicholas, because I think there's a lot of Brookline in that, right. Where I think there's going to be some guys that are just going to lose their fucking minds out there. Terrell Hatton. You know, they've never seen a golf course this quirky and claustrophobic. Um, so let's talk about what I'm looking for this week. So let's do some trends first, actually. You know, Dave Tinzel put out a really, he puts out a really great trends article for every major. And I'm not usually a big trends guy, but there's always one or two that sticks out to me. Remember at the PGA there was that super kind of alarming trend. I think this one was actually from Bamford about guys playing well in their last start, not playing two weeks prior um, or taking a, you know, a couple weeks off. They had to have played the last two weeks. Right. Um, well, I considered, you know, I considered that one pretty heavily and I had an awesome PGA championship. It helped me land on JT over Cantlay. Um, so when a trend comes up, and it makes logical sense, um, too. I think you should think about it, right? Like, 
Let's think about this one logically. It's really fuck. I just talked about how this setup is so different. It's really hard to come in and win a major championship on this style of golf course when you haven't played competitive golf in three weeks. I think it's worth paying attention to. So all of the last 10 winners were ranked inside the top 30 in the official world golf rankings. Uh, This is probably, in my opinion, the hardest major for a mid-tier player to win. Um, I just, I think it's hard to fake your way around a USGA setup for four days. So is this a week to go top heavy? Probably. I mean, I've got some longer shots, uh, because I think there's some value in, in some of the numbers, but for the most part, I think this, you know, this tournament historically, at least is generally won by one of the 30 best players in the world. Seven of the last 10 winners have been American. Um, so we're over two on Tommy Fleetwood, not, not off to the start that we were looking for. All the last 10 winners were between the ages of 21 and 35, sorry, DJ. Um, and all the last 10 winners have already posted a top 25 in the U S open makes sense, right? We probably want a familiar familiarity with USGA setups. It's a, uh, good week for event history truthers. Um, also a good tournament for guys that have had, you know, some, some experience on these, right? Like each of the last nine winners have played in at least three us Opens. So, you know, hopefully you've played well in them, but at the very least you've, you've played at least in a couple of them, probably not great for the, the cam young and Mito truthers out there. Uh, this is probably the biggest difference in setups between, what an average PGA tour course looks like in all the majors. And then this one made a lot of sense. Eight of the last 10 winners have posted a top 10 in at least one of their previous two majors. Um, so you want to have that kind of short term recent success in majors. I've noticed that a lot recently too. Um, and then this is, this is an obvious one, right? You got to be coming in with good form. You you know, you want to take a guy in bad form in DraftKings, by all means, probably I'll definitely do some of that. But if we're talking about guys who can win, seven of the last 10 winners posted a top 15 in one or both of their previous two starts. Um, and then interesting one for the U.S. Open, seven of the last 10 winners did not play the week before. So I think you want somebody who's played recently in the past two weeks. I don't want somebody who you know, hasn't played at all since the PGA championship. I don't care whether they played in Canada or live, I should say. Uh, but hopefully, you know, they at least played the Memorial or colonial and we're good. Um, if you don't have one good start between now and the PGA, I don't think that's a great sign. Um, or at least history has shown us that's not a great sign, but let's, let's actually talk about what I think is going to matter this week what I think you need to be looking for in your players. So let's go through the big stack categories that we always talk about. You know, I really think the way that the USGA sets up these courses now, and we've seen it with Rom and Woodland and DJ and Brooks a ton recently, you know, long and straight is really important. You really want to be a good driver of the ball here. Eight of the last 10 winners are top 15 in driving distance. Now you can say Brookline, is a much shorter course than your typical U S open. That's true. It's about 500 yards shorter than Torrey Pines was last year, 
but it's about accuracy too, right? Like eight of the last 10 winners were top 30 in accuracy too. So if there's one thing that we've really learned from these USGA setups, got to be a great like total driver of the ball. Um, Bamford was talking about this too in his article. It's like all these recent US Open winners, they're coming in driving the ball great too. Like a lot of them either led the field and off the tee in their most recent start um, or were close to it. You know, that's something to pay attention to. Xander, for example, had this awesome week at Memorial with his irons, but really struggled off the tee. So he's not coming in with peak off the tee form. That might be a little bit of a concern because history has shown us that you really want to come in with a lot of confidence off the tee. Now, last year at Torrey Pines, I think distance was far more important than accuracy. And at Brookline, I think it's a lot more even. Uh, I think you need to be concerned with both. Um, Whereas winged foot and Torrey Pines was just distance. I don't know if I looked at much accuracy stuff at all with Torrey and, and, and winged foot. Um, and the reason for that is this. Gil Hans did the restoration for winged foot, as I'm sure many of you know. And, you know, he actually got asked what he thought about what Bryson did to winged foot. You know, the bomb and gouge thing. And he was like, frankly, when we restored the course, I really didn't think that was possible. Um, that wasn't really how we intended the course to play. And as somebody that's played winged foot, I'm still in shock, too, of what Bryson did. Those... But, you know, you got to, you kind of always seem to underestimate, right, what these guys are capable. And speaking of which, those four days, you know, I will die on this hill. Those four days of golf by Bryson was the most dominant major championship performance I've seen since Martin Keimer at Pinehurst in 2014, which I was also at. Um, To live guys now, by the way. Uh, Hopefully we see them back competing at the highest level in majors. Uh, but, you know, people just really hate Bryson and that U.S. Open was during COVID with no fans and football season was getting on its way. So it kind of just got lost to history. But I don't think he gets enough credit for that one. That was a un- unbelievable four days of golf. But point being, Gil Hans said because he's done some more work on this, even in the last two years with Brookline, um, you know, that that was on their mind when they were putting on some of the finishing touches on Brookline, right? They had to consider it because last time he completely underestimated, as I think we all did, that element with winged foot. Um, And he was pretty adamant that you would not be able to do that at Brookline. Here's the reason. So first of all, the rough isn't consistent at Brookline. So like at winged foot, if you were five yards off the fairway or 20 yards off the fairway, you were in the same amount of rough. Brookline, if you're 20 yards off the fairway, you're in fescue, right? So you can't just wail away off the tee here. The other thing about winged foot, winged foot had huge greens that were open in front and a lot of them sloped from back to front. So it was really easy to be able to hack a wedge out of the rough and have it bounce onto the green and access some of those back hole locations or kind of land it short and access some of the front ones too. Whereas Brookline, Brookline has these absolutely microscopic greens and a lot of them are guarded in front by bunkers or rough or they're angled off. So, you know, it's a lot harder to have balls bounce onto the green. So 
you know, it really, really does pay to hit the fairway here. There are a couple holes where if you're not in the fairway, you're just absolutely dead. I mean, the rough from everything I've heard and seen, it's going to be really thick, even for a U.S. Open. We're talking double fertilizer, just hack it out the best you can type rough. And these fairways are just fucking ribbons. Um, so like I said, the USGA, it really likes execution. Can you hit the golf shots? And if you can't drive the ball straight here off the tee, good luck. And it's long enough, by the way, you know, you can club down to hit some of these fairways, but you're then going to be tasked with, you know, much longer approach shots on some of these holes. Um, and these fairways are so narrow, by the way, that even the most accurate guys are going to miss them. So you still want to be long, right? Because the worst case scenario is that you're short and in the rough. Good luck with that. So when I say I kind of care about distance and accuracy equally, I could see the argument for both sides, right? You're not going to be able to do what Bryson did. But if you are long and somewhat straight, I still think you have a massive, massive advantage. I mean, if you wanted to go you know, super aggressive and just go really heavy in one way or the other, really heavy on distance over accuracy or accuracy over distance. I could see you taking that method to maybe help you get on some different guys than everyone else. I just think where I net out on USGA setups at US Opens, like total driving is just really, really, really important. I think you have to be borderline dominant off the tee to win a US Open. Even on a shorter venue like this, you know, which actually isn't, that short, but it's just, it's not like a Tory Pines or an Aaron Hills where distance is <clears throat> the defining feature. So moral of the story, I'm huge on total driving this week. And then when it comes to approach play, when we map out courses and try and figure out where the approach shots are going to be coming from, you have to go hole by hole and really try and figure this out. So Southern Hills actually had a lot of short iron approaches. And this course is shorter overall on the scorecard than Southern Hills, but I think you're going to have a lot more long irons on this course than you did at Southern Hills. I counted. So 50% of the holes, when you go through them hole by hole, like there's a pretty good chance you're going to have an approach out over 200 yards. Seven of the par fours on this course measure over 450. And the key is that five of them measure over 470 and four of them measure over 485. Um, so if you're, you're looking at, you know, specific proximity buckets, um, which I think is a flawed stat in general. So don't, if you're going to look at them, at least look at it long term, right? But I think you want to be trying to identify long iron players, right? Which is going to be the case at every single US Open, by the way. I mean, this is one of the shortest courses on the rotation and, its defining feature has nothing to do with length. And still, you're going to have a long iron in your hands on this course way more than your average course. You know, part of the USGA modern setup is testing long iron play. Um, and you could see that a lot with how this course has been lengthened. So obviously, we know that great approach play is essential at a US Open. Uh, these greens are tiny. Everyone is going to be missing them, which actually leads me a little bit more towards short game. Um, but I still have a pretty kind of hefty weight on trying to identify these elite long iron players. And then around the green, which has been a big one at the last two majors, um, 
here's a quote for Matt Fitzpatrick. I made it on short game. I mean, when does Matt Fitzpatrick not make it on short game? But, you know, I think that is, that's it here, right? Like, I think when I did this uh, early breakdown in September of the, of the golf course, and I talked about the small greens, and I talked about how I thought it was either going to be a short game contest or, you know, the best iron player in the world was going to win by five strokes. I think with like now the shots are the shots coming into the greens are even longer than I expected. I think it's going to be like a greens and regulation percentage close to like 50%. I, I, I just think short game here is going to be so important. And I, I can't emphasize enough too like the shots that you're going to have to hit around Brookline. They're going to be so much different than the shots that you're going to have to hit around a Southern Hills or an Augusta national where, you know, I talked about all the shaved areas at, at, those courses at Brookline, like you're still going to have shaved areas, but you're going to have a lot of shots out of thick rough too. You know, there's a fair amount of bunkering and thick rough around these greens. Um, so as well as short game, I kind of tried to go back and look like how have players performed around the greens on, on courses with, with thicker rough. And then with putting, you know, this is not an Augusta national where you have these, very undulating contoured greens with all these little pockets in them. They're just too small for that. Um, and there's definitely some slope to them, but mainly they're just really fucking small. Um, and they tend to also tilt in a direction that is not really advantageous to where you want to be if you hit a bad drive. So you're really going to have like a harder time accessing some of these pin positions, which I just think is another feather in the cap of how good you need to be off the tee. So, you know, I'm not really looking at any blended POA stats. I think that this type of POA is fairly different than the POA that we see at Riviera um, and Torrey and Pebble. So, you know, I'm really just looking at these greens are going to be fast. I know POA gets like a slow reputation. No, that's not the case. These greens will be very fast. East Coast POA, this type of poa, remember how fast they were at Wingfoot? I know the West Coast poa can get a little slow sometimes and splotchy. These are going to be lightning fast greens. Um, so I think a huge stat that you want to look at always at every single U.S. Open is like putting inside 15 feet because you ask any player and they will tell you this is the number one tournament of the year where they're going to have more 5 to 10 footers for par than any single other week. And you want a guy that's going to grind with those five to 10 footers. Like a lot of the shots, a lot of the lag putts, a lot of the chips that they're used to hitting to tap in range, they're not going to be hit to tap in range this week, right? Especially around these greens, depending on what side you are in the green. So I looked pretty for putting, like I really just looked pretty heavily at long-term, like kind of putting five to 10 feet inside five feet. 10 to 15 feet too, putting on fast greens. Um, so I, I just, I can't emphasize enough how important I think that is. And then with scoring stats too, um, you know, another thing that I thought was interesting, this is another, I'm giving a lot of free plugs to the, the fried egg podcast, but if you guys can't tell, I, I really just appreciate their work. If you're one of the people maybe that are listening to the this for less of the gambling stuff and more of the architecture stuff. Um, I know you're, you're familiar with them, but, um, 
he, you know, he talks about how this is a golf course that is going to prohibit scoring, right? It's a course where if you make a mistake, you're really going to have to play defensively and take your medicine. It's not a golf course that's going to enable a lot of birdies. So instead of having this kind of wide range of possible outcomes, it's going to create a constant, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's going to create like a kind of a concentrated range of possible outcomes, um, which I thought was very well said. So for me, I'm looking pretty closely at like a bogey avoidance, right? How players have done in difficult scoring conditions and how players have done on similar USGA setups, um, which I'll get into with the comp courses. And that's why I love, you know, do diving so deep into the architecture stuff, because I really think that you can actually, if you pay attention to this stuff, what I try and do, which I saw was an opening, which why I think I've been pretty successful is there were all these great gambling podcasts out there and they were all these great kind of golf purist architecture podcasts out there. And no one was really bridging the gap. No one was really using their love of architecture to help them make money betting on golf. Right. So I think you can kind of learn a lot from trying to figure out, okay, let's look at, let's look at all these holes and let's kind of think about how, how are they intended to be played? What was the architect going for here? And I think a lot of the time with a course like Brookline, right? It's a course that you're going to have to be very, very defensive in if you're not in the fairway off the tee, right? So some of these like difficult scoring conditions, um, bogey avoidance, like I think that stuff's huge this week. And then for comp courses, uh, you know, TPC Boston is the obvious one. That is a Gil Hans course in Boston with chocolate drop mounds. You know, aesthetically, there's some similarities there. You also can shoot 30 under there. Um, and I mean, the last time we went there, DJ shot 30 under. Scheffler shot a 59. Um, if you shot 10 under par at TBC Boston, you didn't even make the top 25. If you shot even par, you finished dead last. And if you shoot even par this week, you might win the tournament. Um, so aesthetically, yes. But that would be the extent of it for me. You know, I think people are going to immediately think of winged foot too. I think that's a little short-sighted. Um, I don't like winged foot at all. I mean, the topography is so different. The strategy that you have to employ that I already mentioned a little bit earlier, the greens at winged foot are huge with these ton of open fronts where you have this runway to bounce it on, which, you know, I already talked about a little bit before. And of, of course, too, this course is nothing like Tory Pines either. Tory Pines is, can you do the same thing over and over again? Can you just hit the repeat button? Um, this course, you're going to be tasked with, you're going to be, there are far more uneven lies here. There far, there's far more quirk. It's far more claustrophobic, right? There's far more an emphasis on placement off the tee. Um, weirder shots that you're going to have to hit around the green. So if you're look, I I think with comp courses for a U.S. Open, you really only want to look at U.S. Open venues um, because, like I said, the USGA setups are just so different. So, you know, these I'm not a fan of if you're throwing out non-USGA setups as, you know, real comp courses. Sure, maybe there's some things in common with the required skill set, but I just the USGA has such a specific setup with the way they set up their courses that I think if you're looking at similar courses, the best you're going to do is finding the U S open venues that look the most like this one. And to me, that's Marion to me, that's Pebble beach. And to me, that's the Olympic club. 
in 2012. Um, you know, Marion, I'll die on this hill. And this, I, I had this connection with, and I was been blessed to get to watch it more on TV this week, which only makes me feel stronger about the comparison um, because that is the one of those three that I haven't actually played myself. Um, but I talked about this with Shinnecock, right? And you go through the Shinnecock leaderboard at Southern Hills and it worked out really fucking well because I looked at these courses architecturally and I looked at the type and it helped that time that I had played both Shinnecock and Southern Hills. So I haven't played Marion or Brookline, so maybe I'm off a little bit on this. But you look at these courses, and architecturally, it's asking you the same. It's asking you to do the same types of things, right? It's not just the same required skill set, but it's the same kind of types of shots. It's the same kind of nuance on both of these courses, where it's a little bit shorter, but it doesn't matter that it's really short um, because some of those holes. Like at Marion and at Brookline, it's it's probably going to take driver out of your hands sometimes. You're going to have blind shots. And, you know, Marion was even shorter than this course. And it played as one of the hardest U.S. Opens in the past decade. And that course was barely 7,000 yards on the scorecard. So like I say always, you know, distance really means nothing if you have interesting architecture. And Justin Rose won that U.S. Open at plus one. And you look at the rest of that leaderboard. It's Jason Duffner, Billy Horschel, Luke Donald, Steve Stricker. Like all those guys are kind of plotters, really good iron players, really accurate. And even a guy like Phil Mickelson, who probably should have won that tournament, um, is maybe the most creative player in the history of golf. So I know you think of Mickelson as a bomber. But I've actually always thought of him as somebody that excels the most on quirky courses, right? Courses with small greens or kind of difficult green complexes because he's so creative around the greens. And when he's given option, like good architecture tends to do, uh, it's not just can you execute the same shot over and over again like you have to do at Torrey Pines, right? It, those are kind of the the setups that bring out the creativity aspect and Spieth talks about this a ton. Those are the setups that Phil's going to excel at. Those are the setups that Spieth is going to excel at, right? With uh, Pebble Beach too, I, I think Brookline's a lot harder of a golf course than Pebble Beach. Um, but you've got kind of the POA aspect. You've got the shorter U.S. Open aspect. They do let that rough grow out um, U.S. Open week at Pebble. Right. And it just in terms of the small, tiny, tiny greens. Right. And the idea that you have these guys hitting long irons into tiny greens um, and kind of deeper bunkers and, and not kind of that runway that you see at a winged foot or an oaked mod or a Shinnecock. You can't really use the ground game at a course like Pebble Beach. Right. So I, I, I think the types of shots that you're going to have to hit is really, really similar there not the freaking tournament that Tom Hoagie won. I'm talking about the USGA setup, Pebble Beach. And then Olympic Club too. Um, you know, that's another course that it is a bit in the weeds here, but that's a course that has kind of these reverse camber fairways, um, which is which basically means that the the fairway is sloping in the other direction that the hole is going. Um those are a blast to play on, by the way. And Brookline isn't as severe as Olympic Club, 
But you still have a lot of that with the really angled fairways and the really angled greens where, you know, the hole is going in one direction, but the slope of the land is going in the other direction. Um, And then, you know, a couple other courses that have hosted majors that I've played before that kind of gave me some of these vibes were Oak Hill and Beth Page, right? Um, Neither of those were USGA setups. Um, But both of those, especially with the with the greens at Beth page, I've been talking with Twitterless Steve about that, who I'll get to talk to a lot more later in the week, check out their podcast that I'm going to be doing, I believe on Monday night. Um, you kind of have these smaller targets that are surrounded by thicker rough and bunkers, right? Where again, like I talked about, you can't really use the ground game at a course like Beth page. And it's been, it's been like six years since I've played Oak Hill, but I think there was a, there's a lot of that too, at least with kind of the narrow fairways and the really thick rough, right? Um, Olympia Fields, I don't know if you remember where John Rahm won the BMW um, and Fitzpatrick was top five there too. That one's not terrible either. Um, so that's all I would do. That's what I'm doing. It worked for me at Southern Hills where I, you know, I, I think I'm sure you probably make an argument for a lot of other places, but to me, I just think that USGA setups are so, so specific. And I also think it's a mistake to what not kind of go through them and, and try and figure out, okay, is this course asking you to do the same thing? Shinnecock's asking it. Shinnecock's a totally different story, right? Wingfoot's a totally different story in terms of the types of shots that you're going to have to hit there, right? But you get to a course like Marion, you get to a course like Olympic Club, and it's like, okay, here, this is kind of, if you want to go back and look at kind of those final rounds, like it's going to look very similar in terms of the positions that these guys are in and the types of shots that they're going to have to hit. So we're going to probably go a little over an hour. I, I don't have a huge early lead section because in full disclosure, I still don't totally know what I'm going to do. But I put all this together. You know, all the specific courses that I'm looking at, all the the putting metrics and the difficult scoring conditions and the thicker rough stuff and the long arm play and the total driving. And I feel good about this one. It's a little... I feel good about it. They're not any huge surprises, right? Which I, I guess kind of the point of, of what you're doing with a lot of these models is trying to find value. Um, and there weren't a ton of... My model, it doesn't seem as vastly, vastly different from the betting market. I mean, there are a couple guys that I'm way off on, but let me run through it. So for the second... Actually, he was number two. But for the second major in a row, maybe the third... These guys might have been one, two at the Masters, too. But I have Rory McIlroy as number one and Justin Thomas number two. Man, Rory's going to be interesting. I mean, you look at how he's pl- I caught a little bit of the Canadian Open this afternoon. Um, it seems like he's got a little bit of a, you know, like I said, the chip on his shoulder with the live thing going on. I don't know whether I feel better or worse about Rory if he actually wins in Canada. But it seems like he's kind of rounding into form. And same with Justin Thomas, too, right? I, I, I think these guys, look, we can't quantify this stuff, but just read between the lines with all their quotes. Like, these guys are kind of trying to make a statement here, it seems like to me, right, from everything I've heard and everything I've listened to and everything I've watched. Um, I think they're probably going to be pretty dangerous 
at Brookline too. I like a lot of guys in the nines, so I don't, and I think Rory is going to be mega, mega chalk no matter what happens tomorrow. But in terms of my model, Rory McIlroy and Justin Thomas are the number one and two players. Number three is Scotty Scheffler. No huge surprise there. Okay, number four is Sung J.M. I ran this a lot of times. He's right where he should be. He's going to be very popular this week. I, we can get to him in a second. Five is John Rahm. Six is Patrick Cantlay. Seven is Xander Shoffley. Eight is Cameron Young. Hmm. He's also 8,800 too. So that's going to be an interesting one. But you look at the kind of the total driving package that he brings, that's kind of why he shot up so high for me. Berger is just like a lock to come in the top 10 of any model that I run on any single course. I don't know how he always finds himself in here, but Berger's nine. Sam Burns is 10. Shane Lowry's 11. Fitzpatrick is 12. Hovland is 13. Um, He's able, which he's even a little bit higher than I thought. He's just, he's such a good driver of the ball, like long and accurate that he's able to overcome a little bit of the short game stuff. 14's Cam Smith. 15, Louis Eustacen, 16, Jordan Spieth, 17, Will Zalatoris, 18, Hideki Matsuyama, 19, Joaquin Neiman, 20, Taylor Gooch. So I think the big surprise, right? Well, for me, the big surprise, Morikawa rated out pretty poorly for me. Um, He was in the low 30s for me. And I know there's some good numbers on Morikawa this week, and I'll have to think about that one. It, more so in DraftKings, I'm quite curious to see where the, the ownership comes out. I mean, the guys that I'm thinking about betting, if you get Morikawa in the low 30s, and I'm thinking about a Cantlay or a Xander in the low to mid-20s, that's a come-to-Jesus moment just a little bit, right? So, I, I again, I can't rule anybody out at this moment. I can tell you I have made one bet. Well, two, I have this 120-to-1. I have 10 bucks on a 120-to-1 on Patrick Reed that I placed a couple weeks ago that this is why I don't love doing futures. I mean, don't get me wrong. 120 to one is a great number on Patrick Reed. I, I just don't know how I feel about it. Um, but I have the, actually I have three bets. I forgot about the other one. I have the 120 on Reed. I took the 65 on Sung Jay, or I think I actually got a 66, just a pure number play. I mean, the guy is fourth in my model, I'd be killing myself if I didn't do it. I would imagine he's going to be very popular. I'm, there's a 99% chance I'm going to end up fading him in DraftKings. Um, so I just wanted to grab that 65 to 1 on him. Um, and then at this point, Fleetwood is just, I'm kind of in too deep with that bet. You know, it's it's actually kind of funny. I forgot who I was telling this to today. When I did the research and I dug more into Fleetwood, I was like, eh. Yeah, I like him. I don't know if I like him as much as some of these other guys, but I saw that boost at 80 and I've just, I've committed to the bit. I'm in too deep. I've had this like incredible golf season. So, you know, when we get to a major, I'm going to, I'm going to bet the guys that I want. And I just, I, I have to bet Fleetwood at this point. I've been saying it for too many weeks. 80 to one's a great number and leaves me a lot of, uh, it leaves me a lot of options and room at the top. So the the, the only three plays, the only three, two real plays that I have in are are Tommy eighty and Sung J sixty six, right? And I think at the uh, 
the top of the board, you know, I, I'm hoping there's a little bit of a, a drift on Cantlay. I will go right back there. I really will. I think it's a good spot for him. Um, if you're making me choose between him and Xander, it's probably Cantlay for me again, which was the same decision that I made at the PGA Championship. And then luckily, you know, I ended up souring on Cantlay and ended up going to JT. Um, but the thing that I would advise too is see what happens, right? These boosts are going crazy. I mean, they've already started and I actually don't think there will be a massive adjustment in odds with DraftKings or, or FanDuel. I think we've already started to see some of the adjustment. I remember I have a, this memory of, you know, with the PGA Championship, they started to adjust early over the weekend and then we kept waiting and hoping for this big adjustment and it never really came, right? Um, but I do think there will be more enhanced offerings. I feel pretty comfortable about that. So, you know, as I roll into... Saturday evening. Um, I want to see how these guys in Canada finish. I want to see how Rory finishes. I want to see how JT finishes. I want to see how Scheffler finishes. I want to see how Burns finishes. I want to see how Lowry and Fitzpatrick finishes. There's too many. I want to see how Cameron Smith finishes. I want to see the totality of the stats. I want to see the round by round stats where those guys are trending. Right. Um, but you know, it's, I'm going to, I'm going to wait and see at least till Sunday night before I probably make any other more moves. You know, what's interesting is the one guy that I talked about, I talked about a couple guys, but one of the guys that I talked about on, you know, the December preview that I did on Marion that I, that I really loved, um, because, because of the, the Marion connection was Horschel. I really think this is a really, really good golf course for Billy Horschel. Now, is Billy Horschel going to win Memorial and the U.S. Open in back-to-back starts? Well, you know, he won FedEx Cup playoff events in back-to-back starts, and he had another run, I believe, in 2019 where he went, like, second, third, 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 fifth. So when he gets hot, he kind of gets going. The question is, do I want to bet Billy Horschel at 50-1 to on, you know, a tournament that he doesn't have the best history on? He has good history on the course that I care about, right? But that was one where I maybe should have grabbed that early um, because he I, I did not foresee him winning the Memorial and being 50-1 to in 8,600 this week. I, I was hoping as soon as he started playing well at Memorial, I was like, God damn it, I love this spot for Billy Horschel. I'm still probably going to play him despite the price increase um, just because I, I like the fit so much. Um, but he's another guy I'm thinking about. Can Billy Horschel win back to back? Yeah. I mean, I I think crazier things have happened with, you know, Scotty and all that stuff. I'm not ruling that out. If somebody fits, I'm trying to get out of, oh, he won too soon. Can JT win back to back majors? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? I'm thinking about him big time. Um, another guy that I think may be a better DraftKings play than an outright bet is I love Hideki Matsuyama this week. I love Hideki this week. He's in this like massive range between Zaltoris and Cantlay and, and Neiman and Cameron Young. And it's just a great, the low nines is such a great range and leave you so many options. Like if you want to go super balanced, that could be your first man in, it could be your second man in, like you could fit three 9K guys in. And I still think that Hideki might 
be the odd man out. Um, which I, you know, I talk about these guys and then Fitzpatrick gets to like 20% last week and stuff. So maybe I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong on this. People will, will play Hideki, but I like that one. I do like Joaquin Neiman a lot at this golf course too. Um, I, I, he's like 40 to one right now. Um, I would probably want like a 45 or a 50, uh, on Neiman, but, uh, I don't know if he's a guy that's going to get boost, boosted. I think that number of 40 with Neiman might tell you what you need to know. I think Neiman might win this week. Um, so those are kind of the guys I'm considering. A Cantlay, a Neiman, a Horschel, a Hideki. I guess I always consider Xander, right? Um but I also may blow it up and it, it feels a little, if you just want to take a narrative thing, which I don't really do, I, I care a lot about, I don't really look at the golf betting thing as like a, it's not an income to me. I'm not a professional handicapper, but it's a, it's a supplemental income. And I, I try and take all emotion out of it and take it really seriously. And, you know, I know a lot of people care. I think it's, that's why I always post my units and stuff because I, care about having credibility in a legitimate track record with majors. I, I think it's probably more fair to go a little bit more gut based than statistical based with some of these things. Right. And I do feel a narrative forming with a, with a Rory or a JT, I ju- especially Rory. I just kind of, you just kind of see it with the, and Rory hasn't won in eight years and there's the live stuff. And now Rory has kind of been anointed this hero. Maybe it just, maybe he just wins Canada and that's it. But I may blow it up and go at the top and, and bet a Scotty or a Rory or a JT. Um, or Rom 18 to one. It's not terrible either. Um, but that will do it for me. We did like an hour 10, not bad. Um, you can find me. I'm going to be a lot of places this week. Uh, I will be doing a betting show with Pat on, uh, that'll probably come out Tuesday morning, late Monday, late Monday night. Should be exciting. I haven't done a show with Pat in a while. Uh, a DraftKings show with Kobe, who's in Scotland right now. Um, that'll probably be out on, on Tuesday afternoon. I will do the, uh, the golf gambling podcast that I do that comes out like late Monday night, Tuesday morning as well. I do my, the odds checker article. Now it's like an outright one um, that comes out early on Monday morning. The Rick run good articles, Mondays and Wednesdays scrambles Tuesdays and, and Thursdays a lot on my plate this week. So I'm going to try and manage it all. And uh, once again, if this show helped you at all, uh, out at all in, in your research or, or kind of figuring out what you're, what you're looking for this week or some of the players you might be looking for. Help me out. Share the show on Twitter. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Remember, leave your name and Twitter handle in the description um, so I know how to contact you with your, your new Scotty Cameron or your cash. Um, but that will do it for me. Best of luck with your bets on Sunday. Uh, at the Canadian Open. Enjoy the Curtis Cup tomorrow as well if you're watching that. And we'll see you back here on Tuesday with Pat. Cheers.